This is the Capital Literature Podcast, bringing you investment letters and audio. The Capital Literature Podcast is a SEBITS capital service for the investment community. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All rights belong to the respective owners. Lazard Asset Management, Third Quarter, 2021 Summary Our outlook for U.S. equities is bright, with U.S. growth likely to remain very strong through 2022. COVID-19 remains the biggest threat to our optimism as the U.S. vaccination rate is below that of peer countries. With U.S. inflation running high, we believe higher interest rates and higher discount rates will be the most important market influences on share prices into 2022. The divergence between low U.S. Treasury bond yields and high inflation indicates to us that something has to give, we believe fundamentals point toward the 10-year Treasury yield normalizing higher and that inflation will prove to be transitory. In light of the breadth and depth of demand for bonds, we do not expect the Federal Reserve's anticipated tapering of bond purchases to disrupt the bond market. U.S. Equity Real GDP growth expectations for the United States drifted lower over the third quarter, with the consensus for 2021 at 6.1% by the end of September, below the peak forecast of 6.6% in May. Yet, as 2021 expectations moderated, 2022 forecasts inched higher under the Assumptions that the most recent wave of COVID-19 might be the last and households would continue to spend some of the over $2 trillion in excess savings they accumulated during the pandemic. COVID-19 remains the biggest threat to our optimism as the U.S. vaccination rate remains below that of peer countries. As we near the end of 2021, we see four key questions facing U.S. equity investors. 1. When will supply chain bottlenecks be resolved? 2. When will the labor market normalize? Three. How much fiscal stimulus will Congress approve? 4. What are the implications for inflation, monetary policy, and markets? We expect transportation challenges to fade through the first half of 2022, but semiconductor shortages could persist into 2023. We believe labor supply will rise over the next six months, mitigating, but not eliminating, upward wage pressure. Finally, the path forward for legislation is politically complicated but our base case is still that both the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package and a subdollar $3 trillion Democratic budget reconciliation package will pass, though we acknowledge that the risk of neither passing has risen over the past few weeks. The most underappreciated risk in Washington right now is an accidental default or missed payment as we get closer to 18th of October, the deadline for government borrowing, according to U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Political brinksmanship by both parties that results in market turmoil is too big a gamble to take, and we believe both parties should extend the debt limit as soon as possible. These assumptions lead us to believe that inflation is likely to remain above 2% through the next two years. While inflation expectations in the bond market appear in sync with this view, other market indicators are not. The U.S. Treasury bond yield curve remains surprisingly flat if inflation is likely to average 2% to 3% for three years, for example. Higher inflation tends to result in higher interest rates and higher discount rates, which we believe will be the most important variables influencing share price behavior into 2022. Low interest rates, and low discount rates, explain why stocks driven by cash flows in the distant future have handily outperformed both those with strong current cash flows and those that benefit from near-term cyclical recovery. Higher rates would imply a reversal in this trend. Pandemic to Endemic? Our optimism about the economy and markets is contingent on controlling the pandemic, 
a feat that should be possible with increased vaccination rates, booster rollouts for vulnerable populations, and other measures like masking where necessary. However, vaccination rates have slowed in the United States, falling behind most high-income countries. The consequence is that COVID-19 infections, hospitalizations, and deaths in the United States are higher than those in other advanced economies, exhibits 1 and 2. Deaths have returned to the winter 2021 level of around 1,600 per day as the crisis has shifted to less vaccinated regions. It is inconceivable to us that U.S. growth will not slow so long as there are 150,000 new cases per day and many intensive care units are full at hospitals in hard-hit areas. Yet, eradicating COVID-19 was never a reasonable policy objective, in our view. Limiting the damage is a more achievable goal. President Joseph Biden's vaccination mandate, of which two-thirds of Americans reportedly approve, should help increase vaccinations. But with around 60% of people fully vaccinated, and at least a third of Americans. With naturally acquired immunity, COVID-19 should soon become endemic, meaning it will occur seasonally and cause far fewer hospitalizations and deaths. Footnote. Many vaccinated people have also had COVID-19, so the two populations are not additive. The total proportion of Americans with antibodies either naturally acquired or through the vaccine was estimated by the Journal of the American Medicine Association to be close to 80% in September 2021. End of footnote. Supply chain bottlenecks. Since COVID-19 vaccinations began, economic demand has roared back, but it has been met with supply chain challenges, chiefly transportation difficulties and semiconductor shortages. Rising shipping and freight costs have added significantly to inflationary pressures. When these issues will be resolved depends on how quickly COVID-19 declines globally, but we expect transportation networks to function normally by mid-2022. Resolution of the semiconductor shortage is more challenging to predict. Executives at global auto companies, which limited production of new cars due to a dearth of chips, suggest that shortages could last through 2023. Semiconductor producers, however, maintain that some customers duplicate their orders across suppliers to get the components they need faster, making demand seem more robust than it is. They are reluctant to increase capacity only to create a glut in several years. In the end, we believe supply and demand will not balance until 2023. Labor markets. Labor is critical in any discussion of inflation in the United States, where wages account for 50% to 55% of the cost of goods. Despite elevated unemployment, wage growth has accelerated as demand for workers has outstripped supply. As of July, there were 10.9 million unfilled positions in the United States, a record high versus 8.3 million unemployed workers, Exhibit 3, according to the Job Opening Labor Turnover Survey, Jolts. People quitting their jobs at record rates, meanwhile, suggests that workers are confident of finding jobs that pay better than the ones they currently have. These gaps point to an inefficient labor market that is matching individuals to jobs more slowly than it once did, which means that it could take longer than many appreciate for the labor market to normalize. Childcare responsibilities, health-related fears, and until recently, the availability of unemployment benefits, have contributed to the limited supply of labor. We expect the number of available workers to increase in the fourth quarter as children return to school. However, we are watching school disruptions and labor force participation rates for prime-age women. Many women stayed home with children through the pandemic, and if fewer women than expected returned to formal employment, upward pressure on wages would increase. Meanwhile, early retirements among workers age 55 to 64 have increased as home values and retirement account balances have grown. Although most Americans cannot retire early, Marginal shifts in participation rates could push wages higher in certain sectors. 
we anticipate wages will rise for the lowest paid workers until labor shortages are resolved. Through the first half of 2021, wage growth for the lowest income quartile, has outpaced wage growth for the top 75% of earners by the widest margin since the late 1990s, Exhibit 4. Low wage roles, including jobs in the hospitality industry, restaurants, bars, and other establishments that could not meet social distancing requirements, were hit hardest by the pandemic and have benefited most from reopening. Long-term wage increases will depend more on the strength of the labor market. Inflation Inflation has surpassed projections through 2021, fueling fears that the Federal Reserve might lose control of it. The August Consumer Price Index, CPI, provided the first indication that some price pressures are transitory. Exhibit 5. Prices for used cars, shelter away from home, rental cars, and food away from home all began to ease. Despite this, the annual inflation rate was 5.3%, slightly below July's rate of 5.4%, the highest level in 13 years. Even though there are signs that inflation may be peaking, some drivers of price pressures such as transportation delays, semiconductor shortages, and rising energy prices may last longer than optimists previously thought. Given this, we expect inflation to remain above the Fed's 2% target through 2022 and perhaps 2023. Tapering In the third quarter, Fed Chair Jerome Powell clearly signaled that tapering will likely begin by the end of 2021. The Fed's flexible average inflation targeting, an approach it adopted last year, gives it leeway to allow inflation to rise above or fall below 2% so it can prioritize full employment. However, our confidence in a continued recovery leads us to believe that tapering will begin this year. The bigger challenge for the Fed and other central banks is how to taper, given the staggering monetary stimulus injected into the economy since March 2020. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the Fed, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, and the Bank of England combined have been buying approximately $800 million of assets per hour, 365 days per year. Legislation. Our confidence that Congress will pass two major pieces of legislation. The $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package and the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, has weakened recently. The likelihood that one or both of the bills collapse because centrist and progressive Democrats are unable to agree has risen. While the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package likely will not change, reconciliation priorities have shifted. Democrats are now targeting $1.90 to $2.3 trillion of spending over 10 years, which may lead to an agreement between moderates and progressives, and both bills could be signed into law in October. Climate adaptation and mitigation funding remain priorities in the reconciliation bill for the Biden administration. Both legislative packages would boost long-term economic growth, though the scale of the proposed spending increases falls short of the headline figures in the media. For example, as Exhibit 6 shows, only $545 billion of the $1.2 trillion infrastructure package is new. Spending. We also expect that a high proportion of the spending in the reconciliation bill will be continued funding for existing programs. We do not expect the packages, if passed, to result in short-term inflation spikes. The spending is spread out such that it will take three to five years to affect the U.S. economy. Investment Implications For equity investors, the most important drivers of share prices are earnings growth and the multiple applied to those earnings. In the next 12 to 24 months, we expect significant earnings growth supported by a strong macroeconomic backdrop. Higher inflation has at least two consequences for stocks. 
First, some companies will find it more difficult than others to pass through cost increases to their customers, putting more pressure on their margins. Second, higher inflation should lead to higher interest rates and a higher discount rate applied to future cash flows, implying a lower valuation multiple for stocks in general. However, these consequences overlook the nuances of how individual companies will fare. Our research has shown that companies that generate and sustain high returns on capital tend to outperform the market through the cycle. We have also found that companies that can improve their returns on capital also outperform, but these improvement stories are less common than one might expect. Higher inflation and higher discount rates will likely present valuation headwinds to the market, but companies generating and sustaining high current returns will face less pressure than those that are dependent on cash flows in the distant future, which are harder to predict with confidence. This changing market paradigm should benefit quality and cyclical recovery stories while putting at a disadvantage speculative growth stocks and companies that depend on cheap financing. As always, our focus is on bottom-up fundamental analysis and security selection. With a shifting economic and inflation backdrop, we are continually assessing which companies are best positioned to navigate changing headwinds and capitalize on the continued economic growth we expect in the United States. The preceding outlook reflects the views and analysis of Lazard's U.S. equity teams. The following outlook reflects the views and analysis of Lazard's U.S. fixed income team. Debt. Inflation continued to be front and center for fixed income investors during the third quarter. Risk asset performance remained generally positive, both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite indices reached all-time highs, and credit spreads continued to grind tighter over the quarter. But high inflation measurements led to further debate in the bond markets over how high inflation could go and for how long and when the Fed would begin its much-anticipated tapering of bond purchases. As the Delta variant of COVID-19 spread within the United States and globally, mixed economic data clouded the picture for inflation, as well as growth and the trajectory of interest rates. Debating transitory inflation. COVID-19 Delta variant infections increased in the United States throughout the third quarter and represented more than 99% of new cases, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. Delta, as well as the potential for other virus mutations, is still a tail risk to the economic recovery, but over the third quarter many bond. Investors started to focus on fundamentals and treasury bond yields, specifically, the increasing disconnect between seemingly improved U.S. fundamentals and persistently low levels in the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury bond yield, which fell to a low of 1.13% during the quarter. Divergence between the 10-year Treasury yield and inflation, in particular, indicates to us that something has to give, either inflation should come down or yields should go up. We agree with our equity colleagues that yields are likely to rise. In our view, fundamentals point toward the 10-year Treasury yield normalizing higher, at around 2%, and that inflation will prove to be transitory for several reasons. To start, inflation measurements appear to be leveling off. Although the five-year break-even inflation rate rose to more than 2.7% in May, its highest level since the global financial crisis, and the five-year real U.S. Treasury yield fell below minus 1.90%, its lowest since the 1980s, these higher inflation measurements are likely the result of supply bottlenecks as the global economy reopens, in our view. The U.S. CPI has been running far above the Fed's 2% inflation target, but the lower monthly increase and lower annualized rate in August may offer an indication that inflation could be topping out as supply bottlenecks are alleviated, more people return to the workforce, and base effects roll off. Second, market measures of inflation are not concerning, in our view. Inflation is widely believed to be rooted in the money supply, caused by too much money chasing not enough goods. To this point, 
M2 Money Supply has indeed experienced a steep jump since the end of February 2020, when the pandemic galvanized the Fed into action with rate cuts and quantitative easing, Exhibit 7. This jump in M2 money supply could be seen as an indication of a new inflationary regime. However, financial markets are not indicating this. The five-year, five-year forward inflation expectation rate is a relatively modest 2.21%, Exhibit 8, and the five-year break-even inflation rate is 2.47%, Exhibit 9. Although both are higher than the Fed's 2% inflation target, we would point out that these market measures of inflation are actually lower than their respective peaks in May of 2.38% and 2.68%. Additionally, the power of money remains weak. For example, the M2 money multiplier, which is a ratio of the change in M2 money supply to the change in the monetary base, or reserves, is low, Exhibit 10, as it has been since the global financial crisis. After holding at 8 or higher since the 1970s, the multiplier dropped precipitously in 2008 and is currently below 4. The low multiplier indicates that although the money supply has increased, there has not been a proportionate increase in loans or credit. The velocity of M2 money supply, which measures the number of times a unit of currency is used to purchase goods and services, also failed to recover in the wake of the financial crisis and remains at historical lows, Exhibit 11. So, although the supply of money has jumped, the money multiplier and the velocity of money indicate that the money is not making its way into the real economy. It is also worth noting that the bulk of inflation so far has come from the Flexible Price Consumer Price Index, a component of the CPI that tends to be very responsive to supply trends. It tracks prices of new and used vehicles, for example, as well as gasoline and many food products that tend to fluctuate in price. The U.S. Factory Capacity Utilization rate, or output level, has risen to 76% as of the latest measurement in August from a low of 63% in April 2020, showing that supply is coming back online. We believe price jumps should moderate. As production increases. However, at 76%, capacity utilization is still historically low, and that means there is room for more supply using current infrastructure, Exhibit 12. In contrast, Prices that tend to stick, such as recreation, education, and medical services, have hardly budged. Furthermore, both CPI and the Fed's preferred inflation measurement, the core personal consumption expenditure, PCE, index, tend to be lagging indicators, not leading ones. In our opinion, recovering from a massive pandemic that shut down the global economy will continue to entail supply chain and labor market bottlenecks as demand picks up, causing volatility in data as well as the pace of the economic recovery, but these should ultimately normalize. Finally, the aging U.S. population, with people naturally leaving the workforce and spending less money on average in their retirement years, acts as a long-term disinflationary force. What would it take to create enduring inflation? We believe that inflation would become systemic only if supply could not meet demand and there were no simple or obvious way to rebalance. This does not seem to be the situation as capacity utilization, as previously mentioned, remains only 76%. Some observers see the potential for U.S. fiscal stimulus to ignite sustained inflation, but we view the fiscal stimulus so far as emergency relief funds. These funds may have cost 30% of GDP, but they were added to the system not to create new revenue but rather to replace lost revenue as jobs disappeared and businesses struggled. In one sign that this is not hot money creating a flood of demand, Savings rates remain historically high at more than 9% of disposable income as of the latest reading in July, Exhibit 13. That said, we acknowledge that how the government unwinds federal aid will be critical. Generous unemployment support, such as enhanced federal unemployment benefits, have made it difficult to quantify the true supply of labor. 
However, with federal aid removed in September and more people getting back to work, we feel that the Fed could be more relaxed about inflation as the tightness in the labor market lifts. Nonetheless, we would also remind investors that any non-productive, debt-fueled spending in the future could pose the risk of stagflation, a condition marked by price inflation, suboptimal employment, sluggish demand, and tepid growth. So why are U.S. Treasury yields stubbornly low? We believe that relative value and technical reasons explain in part why global market participants continue to find U.S. rates attractive, which has kept yields low. Treasuries are the most liquid, globally accessible disaster insurance in the market with significantly positive nominal yield. Other potential flight-to-quality securities such as the German 10-year bond and Japanese 10-year government bond yield. Minus 0.32% and 0.05%, respectively. In fact, as of 31st of August, more than $15 trillion in debt within the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Index had negative yields. Even net of hedging, euro and yen investors could outyield domestic government bonds by owning U.S. treasuries. Another reason for low U.S. rates is that U.S. pension funds have needed to rebalance their portfolios back to fixed income after the strong run-up in equities the past year. We think the 10-year treasury yield will likely move higher from current levels toward 2%, but not much higher, especially if other developed markets' government yields remain negative or near zero and asset allocators, especially pension funds, continue to rebalance portfolios. Fed taper and overall bond market health. Credit markets, which entail higher risk and can be a good indicator of how well a bond market is functioning, remain very strong as well. This has been a boon to U.S. companies, which can borrow at very low rates in an expanding economy. Buyers have snapped up credit securities mainly because, despite historically low spreads, they still offer higher yields than treasuries. In fact, demand for bonds has been strong enough in light of the increased supply that we do not expect a big market disruption when the Fed decides to begin tapering its bond purchases, which could start as early as this November and last through mid-year 2022. Outright hikes in the federal funds rate will likely not commence until any tapering program is over, implying a start date toward the end of 2022 at the earliest. Importantly, the bar is high for the Fed to tighten policy as they have specifically targeted improvement in the job market not just overall, but also for lower income and underrepresented groups. So, in our view the central bank will likely let the economy run moderately above its 2% inflation target for longer than it would have before the pandemic. Investment Implications We believe that the pandemic was the market equivalent of a major natural disaster and what we are seeing now in the United States primarily reflects a steep climb back to normalcy. It is our contention that inflation is rapidly approaching its peak as year-over-year comparisons begin to look less startling. Nonetheless, we acknowledge that longer-term U.S. risk-free rates are likely too low relative to fundamentals, and we look for the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield to rise from current levels toward 2% in the intermediate term as the global economy continues to recover. As the reopening progresses, we expect volatility in data and in the path to recovery. We continue to believe that some companies will emerge stronger from the pandemic and others weaker, and this bifurcated recovery will favor security selectors. In addition, as legacy business models are scrutinized for their sustainability, we strongly believe that investors need to focus on lending to viable obligors over a long term. In other words, investors should scrutinize who they are lending to and the terms and conditions under which they are lending. They may want to consider mitigating liquidity risk by focusing on key security investment characteristics that have historically been reliable in determining institutional investor demand. Namely, we believe investors should focus on securities and obligors with key attributes, such as 
serving an essential economic or financial function. Issuing under standardized terms and conditions. Offering in institutional markets and institutional lot sizes. Exhibiting established transitions markets enabling the ability to absorb rating downgrades. Qualifying for inclusion in major market indices.